don't know what it's like to really create something, to create a life. Feel it growing inside you. All you know how to create is death. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Logic clearly dictates that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Dinosaurs uh, uh, had their shot, and nature selected them for extinction. This is Ripley, last survivor of the Nostromo, signing off. For all its popularity, you would be forgiven for thinking that science fiction is easy to classify. However, there appears to be just as many definitions as there are practitioners. In 1926, Hugo Gernsback, after whom the Hugo Awards are named, defined it as stories of charming romance intermingled with scientific fact and prophetic vision. Over a half a century later, Isaac Asimov, author of I, Robot, categorised it as extraordinary voyages into any of the infinite supply of conceivable futures. And in the year 2000, Arthur C. Clarke said it was something that could happen, but usually you wouldn't want it to. Fantasy is something that couldn't happen, though often you only wish that it could. But disparate as those opinions are, there does appear to be some connective tissue. And that is the future, what Gernsback alluded to as prophetic visions. However, prophecy, a word that originates in religious teaching, is only a prophecy if it comes to pass. Otherwise, it is just a wild and inaccurate prediction. But if a prophecy does come true, it changes from a vision to a fact. And that entails another challenge in defining science fiction. Because it would appear that sometimes we have to retroactively recalibrate our understanding of it. When a vision changes to real, what is once considered impossible becomes credible. When Asimov described science fiction as extraordinary voyages into the infant supply of conceivable features, perhaps he was referring to the likes of Jules Verne and H.G. Wells. After all, it was Verne who wrote in 1865 From the Earth to the Moon, and in 1913, it was Wells who wrote The World Set Free, where enormous bombs level entire cities. In 1964, Asimov himself wrote an essay called Visit the World's Fair in 2014, in which he said, Ordinary agriculture will keep up a great difficulty, and there will be farms turning to the more efficient microorganisms. And here is Arthur C. Clarke in 1976. A high-definition TV screen and a typewriter keyboard and through this, you can exchange any type of information, send messages to your friends, so which they can read it, not, they can wait when they get up, they can see what messages have come in the night. Uh, you can call in through this, any information you want, airline flights, price of things at the supermarket, books you've uh, always wanted to read, news, you selectively, you can say, you'll tell the machine, I'm interested in such and such items, sports, politics, or so forth, and the machine will hunt the main central library and bring all this to you selectively, just what you want, not all the junk which you have to get, you know, when you buy the two or three pounds of wood pulp, which is the daily newspaper. But it is not just science fiction. It can also be poetry. After several years working on it, in 1922, T.S. Eliot published The Wasteland. If there were water and no rock, if there were rock and also water, and water, a spring, a pool among the rock, if there were the sound of water only, not the cicada and dry grass singing, but sound of water over a rock, where the hermit thrush sings in the pine trees, drip drop, drip drop, 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 drop. But there is no water. 
Laced with biblical references, Eliot's poem concerned itself with, amongst other things, the futility of existence, the time will end, and, faced with that prospect, truth is not found in religion, but in emptiness, nothingness, the wasteland. Fertility, potency and reproduction are rendered meaningless because they are useless. Since time will end, what is the point of carrying on? Eliot echoed that dark vision in his 1925 poem, The Hollow Men, which concludes with the lines, For thine is the kingdom, for thine is, life is, for thine is thee. This is the way the world ends, this is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but with a whimper. In 1992, P.D. James published her 12th novel, The Children of Men, a dystopian fantasy set in 2021 where humanity is facing extinction. Not from nuclear war or environmental disaster, starvation or disease. No, this apocalyptic horseman is infertility. Men are no longer capable of generating sperm and so the population is no longer reproducing. The last child was born in 1995 and the opening sentence in James's novel announces that the child, Joseph Ricardo, has just died. This is the way the world ends, in a wasteland of infertility. Startling as James's premise is, it does bear more than a passing resemblance to Brian Aldous's 1964 novel Greybeard, which is also set in the future, where the population is ageing and not being replaced. But while James never provides an explanation in her novel, Aldous attributes the infertility to nuclear bomb tests that were conducted high above the earth from which radiation filtered down and has resulted in human sterility. Midwife at the John Radcliffe. I was doing a stint in the antenatal clinic. Three of my patients miscarried in one week. Others were in their fifth and sixth months. Managed to save two of the poor babies. Next week, five more miscarried. Then the miscarriages started happening earlier. I remember booking a woman in for her next appointment and noticing that the page seven months ahead was completely blank. Not a single name. I rang a friend who was working at Queen Charlotte's and uh, she had no new pregnancies either. She then rang her sister in Sydney. It was the same thing there. In 2006, Alfonso Cuaron brought James's novel to the screen. And, while the human race was still capable of reproduction by the time he made the film, the biggest global event that had happened between James's novel being published and Quaron's film being released was the attacks on September the 11th. They precipitated a seemingly endless war on terror, which is precisely what George Orwell had prophesied with his novel 1984. So, while some futures had changed, others had not. And, in acknowledging the differences, Quaron and his fellow screenwriters decided to change a lot of James's story. For instance, in the book, the main character is Dr. Theodore Farron, a 50-year-old Oxford Don, whose diaries serve as the reader's guide for much of the story. That story depicts British society in a state of collapse, barely held together by a totalitarian government, at the head of which sits Theo's cousin, Zan. In the film, Theo is a bit younger, works for the government in the Ministry of Energy, where his cousin, now called Nigel, oversees the acquisition of art from around the world. Another element the writers dispensed with was Theo's explicatory diaries, and in their place, Quaron deploys a series of techniques through which he can fill out the background to the plot. 
the most prevalent of which is television. Day 1000 of the siege of Seattle. The Muslim community demands an end to the army's occupation of mosques. The Homeland Security Bill is ratified. After eight years, British borders will remain closed. The deportation of illegal immigrants will continue. Good morning, our lead story. The world was stunned today by the death of Diego Ricardo, the youngest person on the planet. Baby Diego was stabbed outside a bar in Buenos Aires after refusing to sign an autograph. The second is other characters telling Theo who they are and what they do. You are under the jurisdiction of the fishes. The fishes are at war with the British government until they recognise equal rights for every immigrant in Britain. We're not going to hurt you, we just want to talk. But don't do anything stupid. But of course, none of this would work if Theo were informed and connected with his surroundings. Being connected is a very big theme in Quiron's films. We'll discuss that later. For now, let's focus on the way his team of writers reprofile their protagonist, so that Theo is at best unaware of what is going on around him, at middling, disinterested, and at worst, a cynic. By making him a cynic suggests that by the story's end, Theo will be a true believer. I mean, why else is he called Theo? Faith, optimism and expectation are very central to the film's themes, and no doubt are central to Quaron's view of the world. Here he is in 2011 at the British Academy, recalling his time struggling to make his first film, Love in the Time of Hysteria. At that point, that, that was a period of the, after, uh, uh, at the end of the 70s and throughout the 80s, in which uh, basically Mexican cinema almost disappeared. I mean, they were like, uh, uh, the, 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 the production was very, very limited. And uh, the real filmmakers, they were really struggling. And definitely, uh, they were not, first-time directors from the, young, the, from the young generation. I was very lucky. I was benefited from a moment in which uh, suddenly uh, there was a room for and not only to, to bring back a continuity for the old masters, but also uh, uh, there started to be an opening for uh, people doing their first, their first Whether a science fiction plays out in a novel or on a screen, what the storyteller has to do is render plausible the future or alternate world. But while that is true for both, the luxury authors enjoy is that their words need only to suggest worlds. Filmmakers, on the other hand, need to visualise those words, and doing that, the visual becomes literal. Where words are free, CG images and real-life sets cost money. Now, audiences don't really care about production costs, and thankfully ticket prices don't relate to the size of a film's budget. But what audiences do care about is whether the visuals resonate. Emotionally, socially, politically, environmentally, even meteorologically. The film needs to show how the science fiction world functions, or in the case of Children of Men, teeters on the brink of collapse. Just look at the number of famed London locations Quaron uses. Shaftesbury Avenue, Robin Hood Gardens, Battersea Power Station, the Tate Modern, Admiralty Arch, the Mall, Fleet Street, Trafalgar Square, St James's Park. On a clear day, they would have been easily identifiable. But the way production designers Jim Clay and Geoffrey Kirkland redress them renders them familiar, yet unknown. Clay has worked on films as similar and different as Neil Jordan's The Crying Game, Richard Curtis's Love Actually, Woody Allen's Match Point, and John Emile's Queen of Hearts, all of which were set in London. As for Kirkland, he worked regularly with Alan Parker, constantly refining a look the likes of Midnight Express, Fame, Birdie, Mississippi Burning and Angela's Ashes, where, no matter the location, nor the era in which they were set, 
poverty, decay, abuse or corruption was never all that far away. Of course, another way Quaran articulated those themes was through collaborating with his frequent associate, cinematographer Emmanuel Lebeski. In 2013, they made Gravity, a film that, although set in space, cannot be classified as science fiction, but nonetheless exemplified a technique they had been developing over several projects, the long take. Children of Men delivered several set pieces that unfolded in real time, the longest of which goes on for six minutes. What the long take does is instill in the audience a sense that the what they are seeing is unfolding in an unmediated, unmanipulated manner. There is no intervention, no editorial. It is right here, right now. Which is quite an achievement for a film that is set in the future. Here is Quaran once more, again at the British Academy, this time explaining why he applied the long take to his 2001 film, Itu Mama Tambien. Uh, rather than creating uh, effect we wanted to honor the moment uh, and allowing those moments to flow uh, without interrupt, the interruption of, 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 of editing. Uh, with the actors, it was about trying to create a moment of truthfulness mm. in which the camera was going to be just there to register that moment of truthfulness. Another thing to note about the film is its use of technology. Think of all the science fiction films dominated by computers, robots, gadgets, advanced weaponry, medicine and transportation vehicles. In addition to that, very often in sci-fi, the future is either very clean or complete. The buildings are rarely, if ever, under construction. Nothing new is being built because, paradoxically, although the story is set in the future, by the time the filmmakers have arrived there, it is already finished. The future is not the past. Now note the complete absence of mobile technology. There are no cell phones, laptops, tablets or smartwatches. An interesting departure because it means people communicate the old-fashioned way. They speak to one another face to face. They keep in touch by literally touching one another. They connect. Connectivity is a big thing for Quaran. In the same year he made Children of Men, his compatriots and colleagues, Guillermo del Toro and Alejandro Iñárritu, released their own films, Pan's Labyrinth and Babel. On the surface, the three works are very different, but to Quaran, they share a lot of similarities. I consider Children of Men, Pan's Labyrinth and, 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 and Babel, or Babel, uh, sister films. Uh, three films that I think they speak similar themes. I think that the theme of ideology as a world between communication and people, of people, is a common theme with the three films. And I don't think it's casual. Uh, uh, or a coincidence. It's, it's just that our creative process is, uh, is, is a process that we really share between each, each another. Um, from the moment of gestating or, 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 or thinking about stories, we're talking all the time. So that, that what happens is that unconsciously I think that we are giving an influence to, from one person to the other film. Fourteen years passed between James publishing her book and Quaron making his movie. 
and now 10 years have passed since the film's release. And in the interim, many things have happened. On July 7, 2007, four suicide bombers attacked London. Immigration centres have sprung up across the southeast of England. And on June 24, Britain voted to exit the European Union. All of which may prompt you to ask whether Children of Men is science fiction. I'll have that answer in 20 years. (laughs) 